0: Hello. Welcome to KBOO's Poetry and Everything. I'm Judith Arcana, your host. KBOO Community Radio is in Portland, Oregon, USA. And you, you could be anywhere on this planet. Tunbridge Wells, Accra, Manila, Cartagena, Victoria. Listening. Each month, we have guests who are poets and, every now and then, folks who are not poets all of us reading and talking about poetry and everything. Tonight, Ken Jones and I are celebrating Grace Paley's life and work by reading her writing, both poetry and prose. Ken's a K. Boo colleague. He writes, produces, and performs on comedy shows, does author interviews on Between the Covers, and co-anchors the Monday PM News. We both think that Grace Paley is supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. (laughs) Grace died one dozen years ago this month, at the end of August in 2007. She was a committed activist and a globally celebrated writer. She sat down in front of rolling tanks and rearing horses, got arrested on the White House lawn, and traveled across the world to negotiate prisoner exchanges during the U.S. War in Vietnam. She was one of the great masters of the short story form, a model and a mentor for everyone writing stories in any language, in any country. Grace Paley's life work teaches us what resistance means, calling for liberation, peace and justice, crying out to save the burning earth, demanding health care for all and the right of women to determine the course of their lives. This is KBOO Portland Community Radio, if you've just tuned in. It's Poetry and Everything, and the poetry and the everything tonight are all about Grace Paley with our guest Ken Jones and me. So we're going to start with me reading a little bit of Grace's prose, but not, as most people think, fiction. This is from a very short essay called Traveling. It's the beginning of that. Traveling. My mother and sister were traveling south. The year was 1927. They had begun their journey in New York. They were going to visit my brother, who was studying in the South Medical College of Virginia. Their bus was an express and had stopped only in Philadelphia, Wilmington, and now Washington. Here, the darker people who had gotten on in Philadelphia or New York rose from their seats put their bags and boxes together, and moved to the back of the bus. People who boarded in Washington knew where to seat themselves. My mother had heard that something like this would happen. My sister had heard of it, too. They had not lived in it. This reorganization of passengers by color happened in silence. My mother and sister remained in their seats, which were about three-quarters of the way back. When everyone was settled, the bus driver began to collect tickets. My sister saw him coming. She pinched my mother. Ma, look. Of course my mother saw him, too. What frightened my sister was the quietness. The white people in front, the black people in back, silent. The driver sighed, said, You can't sit here, ma'am. It's for them, waving over his shoulder at the Negroes, among whom they were now sitting. Move, please. My mother said, no. He said, you don't understand, ma'am. It's against the law. You have to move to the front. My mother said, no. When I first tried to write this scene, I imagined my mother saying, ah, that's all right, mister. We're comfortable. I can't change my seat every minute. I read this invention to my sister. She said it was nothing like that. My mother did not try to be friendly or pretend innocence. While my sister trembled in the silence, my mother said for the third time, quietly, no. One of the reasons I love that piece, the whole thing, but specifically that part, is that through much of the time that Grace was writing, she focused on her father. And much later, much later some would say, and she sometimes said, too late. Um, She began to pay attention to her mother. And I thought this piece honors her mother. Um, And now moving to yet another politically inflected Grace Paley piece. We're into the poetry range, you poetry and everything fans. This is called The Hard-Hearted Rich. Oh, how hard the hard-hearted rich are when they meet a working person in their places of work, a cab or a restaurant kitchen, and the hard heart beats and eases the mouth into saying, well, they do get minimum wage, probably, and when they meet an ordinary bum or maybe a homeless person on their street or broad boulevard standing on the pavement comment to all the good shops— "'holding a paper cup or cap, asking for change. "'Oh,' say the hard-hearted rich, "'they will use it for drugs or drink "'and be found at midnight in drunken sleep in the doorway "'of one of the best shops of all.' Than the hard-hearted rich, and there are many, many in our city, just as there are many, many women and men working in hard-driven poverty or not working at all. Oh, the hard-hearted rich move into the glorious evening of drinking and talking and eating and drinking again into sleep in their queen-sized beds as though they were queens with kings beside each other. And it's night, and the moon's bright light falls through the huge windows. Then they decide to try love as a kind of heart softener. They are tired and think to try love. I seem to be, you know, I didn't even realize this when I was putting it together, Ken. I seem to be um, deep in Grace's family in in this set of selections. (laughs) You'll have another family in that. Prose fiction that you'll be reading. This is called I Invited. I invited my mother and father into my dream, which included a table, chairs, a record player, an early evening hospitality. My friends say that their parents are always present to pester the night with little pearls of acid advice. My parents are not like that. I wanted to see my mother and father together. They appeared. They organized their bodies slowly. They saw each other before they were aware of me. She looked at him. "'My God, Zenya, how old you've grown in these 40 years,' she said. "'Also much shorter. "'Is it true you never married?' My father was embarrassed. He was probably ashamed to have outlived her by so many years. What could they say? Then, thank goodness, they remembered their own children. Well, of course, he said. You knew the first little one. At least you gave her some pretty tight hugs and kissed her from head to toe. The other one, my son, a good man, he worries about my health. He asks me, do you have a fever? Are you still coughing? He was a doctor too. He lived long. My mother was amazed. My father says, why not? It's common in this country. Even I, with a vicious heart attack, lived to be 89. My mother says, my God, 89? All those years, did you think of me? All the time, he said. At my 80th birthday, I told everybody I owe everything to you. That was very nice, she said, reaching out. You were working so hard. I didn't think you remembered me from one day to the next. (laughs) Commenting on our parents' relationships is always (laughs) interesting. Um, Here's another. Like I said, I seem to be deep in the family, but okay, I'm going with it. This one is Untitled. Untitled. I needed to talk to my sister. Talk to her on the telephone, I mean, just as I used to every morning. In the evening, too, whenever the grandchildren said a sentence that clasped both our hearts. I called. Her phone rang four times. You can imagine my breath stopped. Then there was a terrible telephonic noise. A voice said, "'This number is no longer in use.' How wonderful, I thought. I can call again. They have not yet assigned her number to another person, despite two years of absence due to death. I'm moving out of the family now into poetry, poems about poetry. My heart leaps up when I behold almost any valley or village in the embrace of U.S. 89, from White River to Lake Champlain. I am less affected by rainbows. They are handsome and fade into the damp sky just ahead of the car. The children who are glad for such beauty can now call out, look, look, a rainbow. They never say, oh, see the town? South Royalton, moving fast behind us, hugged by the White River itself, and what about the splendid hills of Sharon, flattening into hopeful farms, and then finally the drive, the drive downhill into our great city, Burlington, Lake Champlain rises up before your eyes, then lies down to accommodate the New York shore. I am with Wordsworth on most other high perceptions. I must admit to sharing his breathless hope for a long life. Still, it is too late. I am old already. That prayer taken care of by health an inheritance, still that long curling highway made me think of my leaping heart and then of Wordsworth, who with a couple of other poets first taught my heart to leap. And here's another poet poem. It's called The Irish Poet. And, you know, I don't know who this is. See if you can think of who this is, Ken. I don't know. Maybe you've...
1: I guess you, Yeats is the first... <laughs> the first one one think of, Yeah. But there's a lot of great poets from Ireland.
0: I'll say. The gift of gab and all uh, that. The Irish poet. The Irish poet enters the hall late, as usual. No one is angry. Several students have Yeats collections on their laps. One student waves a Patrick Cavanaugh at him. He looks happy. He says, ah... There are three teachers at the podium. They have been peering into a computer full of poems which will be flashed onto a screen. The poems are by Shelley, Yeats, Bishop. They are serious teachers. These poems are the early abysmal drafts of great poets. <laughs> the students are encouraged. They have many abysmal drafts themselves. They have usually stopped at, oh, their second or third draft, What if their longing for their own true invention of language is not strong enough? What if they are satisfied too soon? There is a long communal sigh at the screen full of delicate poetic error. The Irish poet smacks his head and sighs his own sigh. The students laugh and applaud." (laughs) Um, And I'll close this set of poems with these two. That are about, um, well, you'll see. This one is untitled. I had thought the tumors on my spine would kill me, but the tumors on my head seem to be extraordinarily competitive this week. For the past 20 or 30 years, I have eaten the freshest, most organic, and colorful fruits and vegetables. I did not drink. Well, I did drink one small glass of red wine with dinner nearly every day, as suggested by the New York Times. I should have taken longer walks, but obviously I have done something wrong. I don't mean morally or ethically or geographically. I did not live near a nuclear graveyard or under a coal stack, nor did I allow my children to do so. I lived in a city no worse than any other great and famous city. I lived one story above a street that led cabs and ambulances to the local hospital that didn't seem so bad and was often convenient. In any event, I am already old. And therefore, a little ashamed to have written this poem full of complaints against mortality, which, biological fact, I have been constructed for to hand on to my children and grandchildren as I received it from my dear mother and father and beloved grandmother, who all, ah, if I remember it, were in great pain at leaving and were furiously saying goodbye. And this last one related last one of this set is called sisters my friends are dying well we're old it's natural one day we passed the experience of older which began in late middle age and came suddenly upon old then all the little killing bugs and baby tumors that had struggled for years against the body's brave immunities found their level playing fields and victory But this is not what I meant to tell you. I wanted to say that my friends were dying but have now become absent. The word dead is correct but inappropriate. I have not taken their names out of conversation, gossip, political argument, my telephone book, or card index in whatever alphabetical or contextual organizer. I can stop any evening of the lonesome week at Claiborne, Bercovici, Vernarelli, Deming, And rest a moment on their seriousness as artists, workers, their excitement as political actors in the streets of our cities, or in their workplaces, the vigiling, fasting, praying in or out of jail, their lightheartedness which floated above the year's despair, their courageous, sometimes hilarious disobediences before the state's official servants, their fidelity to the idea that it is possible with only a little extra anguish, to live in this world, at an absolute minimum, loving, brainy, sexual, energetic, redeemed. All of those poems are from Grace Paley's collection Fidelity, which came out late, shall we say, in the years of her productiveness. And I kind of like the idea of Um, moving from those poems with their very serious considerations, although occasionally funny, um, to the story that Ken's going to now read for us and tell us about. I feel like
1: such a hog, Judith, for reading this, but I love the story. The the reason is because it uh, goes for about 37 minutes. Well, we want that, don't we, folks? Of course we
0: do, because it's a truly great story. It's a
1: story uh, with language, words put together in a way that is so different from anything else. Uh, Before Grace Paley and after, I, I, I and it uh, mixes up the comic with the tragic. Uh, it, it's got everything in it. So I, I just uh, am very grateful to you for letting me read this.
0: Oh please, we want it. Uh,
1: be, before I start that, uh, in in a Grace Paley reader, which is a you know collection of her work, uh, well actually uh, kind of uh, anthology of her work. It doesn't contain everything, but it does contain uh, some poetry, uh, some essays, nonfiction and uh, some of her short stories. So she was like Ursula K. Le Guin in that, and and she uh, delved into all three um, types of literature. And uh, I I have to tell the listeners that you actually were friends with both of them. And I there did. was a story you told me of being in the kitchen while, while uh, your your uh, partners were in the other room, I don't know, smoking cigars and or probably and drinking not cognac. The but, 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 but they, they were, were the, doing
0: the men's thing while we were doing thing. the women's yeah, thing. Watching football.
1: Right. But yeah. you were in the kitchen <laughs> with Ursula Le Guin and Grace Paley and having this incredible conversation. I just wish it was recorded for posterity.
0: Oh, well, I, I can, since I'm the only one left alive out of that threesome, I can't tell tell you that every single thing, but I can tell you that we had a lot of fun. And it was so classic, the women in the kitchen, the men still at the dining room table, even without cigars and cognac, and definitely not watching football. I can't imagine those guys. Wow, that would be funny. Bob and Charles and Jonathan. Well, anyway, take it away, Ken Jones. So I'm
1: going to start with um, uh, George Saunders, the great... Uh, yes. Uh, well, he's a novelist now, too. He is, his first novel came out last year. Another
0: unstoppable. Like, right? No, uh,
1: mostly for short fiction. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. He wrote the introduction uh, for uh, the Grace Paley reader that I have here. Uh, He calls it uh, uh, The Saint of Scene. And I'm just going to read the very first section there, just a few few paragraphs to kind of set up why I think the story I'm going to read is just a great example of what George Saunders found so uh, fascinating and amazing about uh, Paley's writing. When photography arrived in the world, or so I've heard, painting had to reconsider itself. What can I do? that photography can't, painting asked itself in its alarmed French accent, how may I yet be essential? The prime quality of literary prose, that is the thing it does better than any other form, movies, songs, sculpture, tweets, television, you name it, is voice. A great writer mimicking on the page the dynamic energy of human thought is about as close as we can get to modeling pure empathy. Grace Paley one of the great writers of voice of the last century. There's an experience one has reading a stylist like her that has to do with how rich in truth the phrase or sentence level bursts are and how quickly they follow upon one another. An image or phrase finds you, pleases you with its wit or vividness, shoehorns open your evolving vision of the fictive world, and before that change gets fully processed, here comes another. You find yourself having trouble believing this much wit is washing over you. A world is appearing before you that is richer and stranger than you could possibly have imagined, and that world gains rooms and vistas and complications with every phrase. What you are experiencing is intimate contact with an extraordinary intelligence, which causes the pleasant sensation of one's personality receding and being replaced by the writer's consciousness." Paley's approach is to make a dazzling verbal surface that doesn't so much linearly, linearly uh, straightforwardly represent the world as reminds us of it, of its dazzle. Mere straightforward representation is not her game. In fact, she seems to say the world has no need to be represented. There it is, all around us, all the time. What it needs is to be loved better. Or maybe what we need is to be reminded to love it and to be shown how, because sometimes, busy as we get, trying to stay alive, loving the world slips our mind. Mm. And uh, this, I think, as <laughs> this story is a good example. This was from her first collection, The Little Disturbances of Man, which came out in 1959. And uh, this story uh, was towards the end of the book, it was called In Time, Which Made a Monkey of Us All. And yes, this story does have a monkey in it. No doubt that is Eddie Teitelbaum on the topmost step of 1434, a dark-jawed, bossy youth in need of repair. He's dredging a cavity with a fudgical stick. He's twitching the cotton in his car. He's sniffing and snarling and swallowing spit because of rotten drainage. But he does not give a damn. Physicalities aside, he's only knee-deep so far in man's inhumanity. He's reconciled to his father's hair shirted Jacob, Itzik, Halfund. He's resigned to his place in this brickline utrillo which runs east and west, flat in the sun, a couple of thousand stoop steps. On each step there's probably someone he knows, for the present no names. Now look at the little kids that came in those days to buzz at his feet. That's what they did. They gathered in this canyon pass, rumbling at the knee of his glowering personality. Some days he heated them a long and wiggly line, which they followed up and down the street around the corner and back to 1434. (laughs) On dark days, he made elephants, dogs, rabbits, and long-tailed mice for them out of pipe cleaners. You could also make a great ass cleaner this way, he told them for a laugh, which turned their mothers entirely against him. Well, he was a poor sloppy bastard then, worked Saturday, Sundays, summers, and holidays, no union contract in his father's pet shop. But Pennywise, as regards the kids, he was bubblegum foolish, for bubblegum strengthens the jaw. He never worried, never worried about teeth, but approved of dentures, and for that matter, all prostheses. In the end, man will probably peel his skin, said Eddie, to favor durable plastics, at which time... Kaput, kaput the race problem. A man will be any color he chooses or translucent too if the shape and hue of intestines can be made fashionable. Eddie had lots of advanced information which did not turn a hair of his head, for he talked of the ineluctable future. But all his buddies, square or queer, clever and sentimental, pricked their ears in tears. He also warned them of the spies who peeked from windows or plopped like stones on the street, which was the kids by all unentailed rights. Mrs. Gordinsky, head spy, this consistency of fresh putty, sat on an orange crate every morning, her eye on the door of 1434. Also Mrs. Green, Republican poll watcher in November. The rest of the year, she waited in her off-the-street doorway, her hand trembling, her head turning one way, then the other. Tennis anyone? asked Carl Klopp, the super son. Let her live, said Eddie, marking time. Then one day, old Klopp, the super, rose from the cellar, scrambling the kids before him with a clutter of bottle tops. He took a stance five steps below Eddie, leaned on his broom, and prepared to make conversation. What's the matter, son, he asked. What's your pals? Where's your pals? Under the kitchen table, said Eddie. They got juiced on apricot nectar. Go on, Eddie, you got an in. Who's the bum leaves Kleenex in the halls? (laughs) I don't know. Gordinsky has a cold for months. Ah, her. What you got against her? An old pot of cabbage soup? You always make a remark on her. Out of a dark window in second floor front, a tiny voice sang to the tune of My Country, Tis of Thee. Mrs. Gordinsky was a spy Caught by the FBI Tomorrow she will die Won't that be good? Get a load of that, Klopp, said Eddie. Nobody has any privacy around here, you notice? Listen to me, Klopp. In the country and superbia, every son of a bitch has a garage to tinker in. On account of that, great ideas, brilliant inventions come from out of town. Why the hell shouldn't we produce as fine minds as anybody else? Now, Eddie was just helping Clop out talk-wise, maintaining relations with authority, so to speak. He would have ended the conversation right then and there, since at that moment, he was in the mental act of inventing a cockroach segregator. A device which would kill only that cockroach, which emigrated out of its pitchy crack into the cornflakes of people. "'If properly conceived and delicately contrived, "'all the other cockroaches would be left alone "'to gum up the lays and multiply "'and finally inherit the entire Congressional District. "'Why not?' "'Not so dumb,' said Mr. Klopp. "'Privacy.' "'Then he let Eddie have a be-whiskered, eye, sidewise leer. "'What you need privacy for, you, "'to stick it into girls?' "'No reply.' (laughs) "'Klopp retrieved the conversation.' So that's how it goes. That's how they get ahead of us, the farmers. What do you know? How come someone doesn't figure it out? To educate you kids up a little, especially in summer. The city's the one pays the most taxes. Anyway, what the hell you do on the stoop all day? How come Carl hangs out in front of Mikhelevich? Morning, noon, night, every time I look up. Come on, get the hell off the stoop here, you title Baumy yelled. Stupids! Stick the Kleenex in your pocket. He gave Eddie a splintery whisk with a broom. He turned away, frowning, thinking, Go away, bums, he mumbled at two loitering infants, maybe four years old. <laughs> Nevertheless, Klopp was a man of grave instinct, a serious man. Three days later, he offered Eddie the key to the bicycle and carriage room of 1436, the corner and strategic building. For thinking up inventions, said Klopp. What are we, animals? He went on to tell that he was proud to be associated with scientific research. So many boys were out bumming on the tramp, tramp, tramp. Carl, his own son, looked bad, played poker day and night under the stairs with Shmuel, the rabbi's son, a Yankee in a skullcap. There's a footnote. Yankee in a skullcap, my day and night in the East Bronx, by (laughs) Shmuel Klein from Mitzvah Press. Therefore, Klopp begged Eddie to persuade Carl to do a little something in his line of thinking and follow through. He really liked science very much, Mr. Klopp said, but needed a little encouragement since he had no mother. Okay, okay, Eddie was willing. He can help me figure out a rocket to the moon. The moon, Mr. Klopp asked. He peeked out the cellar window at a piece of noonday sky. Right before Eddie's mirage-making eyes for his immediate use was a sink, electricity, gas outlets, and assorted plumbing pipes. What else is basic to any laboratory? Do you think that the Institute for Advanced Studies started out any stronger than that? Or all the little padlock cyclotron houses? The beginning of everything is damp and small, but wide-armed oaks, according to myth, legend, and the folktales of the people, from solitary acorns grow. (laughs) Eddie's first chore was the perfection of the cockroach segregator. At cost plus 6%, he trailed some low-voltage wire all around local kitchen baseboards, which immediately returned to its gummy environment under the linoleum, the cockroach which could, which could take a hint. It electrocuted the stubborn fuel fools not meant by Darwin any way to survive. There was nothing particularly original in this work, and he would be the first to concede that he had been thinking about the country and cows all summer, as well as barbed wire— and had simply applied recollected knowledge to the peculiar conditions of his environment. What a a hell of a summer this is turning into, said Carl, plucking a bug off the lab's wire. I mean, we ought to have some fun too, Eddie. How about it? I mean, if we were a club, we would be more well-rounded. Everyone wants fun, said Eddie. (laughs) I don't mean real fun, said Carl. We could be a science club, but just you and me. Nah, I'm sick of that crap. Get some more guys and make it an organization, Eddie. Why not, said Eddie, anxious to get to work. Great. I've been thinking of some names. How's uh Van Sears? Uh, You get it? Stinks. I thought of a funny one, like on those little cards. How about the Thimkers? (laughs) Very funny. Carl didn't press it. All right, but we have to get some more members. Two, said Eddie, thinking a short laugh. Well, OK, but Eddie, what about girls? I mean, after all, women have the vote a long time. They're doctors. And what about Madame Curie? There's others. Please, Carl, lay off. We got about 13 miles of wire left. I got to figure out something. Carl couldn't stop. He liked girls all around him, he said. They made him a sunny, cheerful guy. He could think of wonderful witticisms when they were present, especially Rita Niskoff and Stella Rosenzweig. He would like to go on describing, as an example, the Spitz twins, how they were so top-heavy, but with hips like boys. Hadn't Eddie seen them afloat at the Seymour Street pool, water-winged by their airtight tits? Also darling little Stella Rosenzweig, like a Vassar girl despite being only in third-term high. When you danced with her, you could feel something like pinpricks, because although she was little, she was extremely pointed. Eddie was absolutely flipped by a groundswell of lust just before lunch. To save himself, he coldly said, No, no, no girls. Saturday nights they can come over for a little dancing, a little petting, fix up the place. No girls in the middle of the week. (laughs) He promised, however, to maintain an open line between Carl and the Spitz twins by recruiting for immediate membership their brother Arnold. That was a lucky, quiet choice. Arnold needed a corner in which to paint. He stated that daylight would eventually disappear, and with it, the mists about north light. He founded in that dark cellar, a school of painters called the Lightbreakers, who still worked together in a loft on East 29th Street under two 25-watt bulbs. On Carl's recommendation, Schmuel Klein was ingathered, a great fourth hand, but Eddie said no card tables. Schmuel had the face of an unentrammeled guy. Did he make book after school? No, no, he said. Rumors multiplied. The truth was single. He was a journalist of life, as as Eddie was a journeyman in knowledge. When questioned about his future, he would guess that he was destined to trip over grants, carrying a fearsome load of scholarships on his way to a soft job in advertising, using a fraction of his potential. (laughs) Well... There were others, of course, who glinted around, seeking membership under the impression that a neighborhood cat house was being established. Eddie laughed and pointed to a market glutted by individual initiative, not to mention the way the bottom had fallen out of the virgin as moral counterweight. It took time out of Eddie to be a club. Whole afternoons and weekends were lost for public reasons. The boys asked him to hold open meetings so that the club's actual disposition would be appreciated by the parents of girls. Eddie then talked, the dispersal of the galaxies and the conservation of matter. Carl applauded twice in an anarchy of enthusiasm. Mr. Kloplasen was impressed, asked what he could do for them, and then tied their wattage into Mr. Gordinsky's meter. Eddie offered political lectures, too, as these are times which, if man were human, could titillate his soul. From the four-by-six room, which Eddie shared with Itzik Halbfunt, his father's monkey, He saw configurations of disaster revise the sky before anyone even smelled smoke. Who was the enemy, he asked, to needle a little historicity into his clubmates? Was it the people of the sea, Troy, Rome, the Saracens, the Huns, the Russians, the colonies in Africa, the stinking proletariat, the hot (laughs) owners of capital? Typically, he did not answer. He let them weave his broad questions on poor pinheaded looms while he slipped into Mikelevich's for for a celery tonic. He shared his profits from the cockroach segregator with the others. This way they took an interest and were courteous enough to (laughs) heed his philosophic approach, as did the clients to whom he pointed out a human duty to interfere with nature as little as possible except for food-getting survival, a seminal tragedy which obtains in the wild forests as well. Reading, thinking on matters beyond the scope of the physical and chemical sciences carried his work from the idealistic cockroach segregator to a telephone dial system for people on relief within a 10 block radius. And finally, to the well-known war attenuator, which activated all his novitiate lab assistants, but featured his own lonely patients. Eddie, Eddie, you take too much time, said his father. What about us? You, said Eddie. (laughs) How could he forget his responsibilities at the Teitelbaum Zoo? A pet shop where three or four mutts scabby with sawdust slept in the window. A hundred gallons of goldfish were glassed inside. Four canaries singing, All waited for him to dump the seeds, the hash, the mash into their dinner buckets. Poor Itzik Halbfunt, the mucky from Paris, France, waited too, nibbling his beret. (laughs) Itzik looked like Mr. Teitelbaum's uncle who had died of Jewishness in the epidemics of 4041. For this reason, he would never be sold. Too bad, is an outsider's comment, as a certain local Italian would have paid maybe $45 for that monkey. In sorrow, Mr. Teitelbaum had turned away forever from his neighbor, man, and for life. Then he squinted like a cat and hopped like a bird and drooped like a dog. Like a parrot, all he could say and repeat when Eddie made his evening break was, Eddie, don't leave the door open. Me and the birds will fly away. If you've got wings, Papa, fly, said Eddie. And that was Eddie's life for years and years. From childhood on, he shoveled dog shit and bird seed, watching the goldfish float and feed and die in a big glass of water far away from China. One Monday morning in July, bright and hot and early, Eddie called the boys together for assignments and reconnaissance and mapping. Carl knew the basement extremely well, but Eddie wanted a special listing of doors and windows, their conditions established. There were three buildings involved in this series, 1432, 1434, 1436. He requested that they keep a diary in order to arrive at viable statistics on how many ladies use the laundry facilities at what hours, how hot the hot water generally was at certain specific times. Because we're going to work with gases now, Gas expands, compresses, diffuses, and may be liquefied. If there's any danger involved at any point, I will handle it and be responsible. Just don't act like damn fools. I promise you, he said bitterly, a lot of fun. <laughs> he asked them to develop a little competence with tools. Carl, as the son of Klop, plumber, electrician, and repairman, was a happy, aggressive teacher. In the noisy washing machine hours of morning, under Carl's supervision, They drilled barely visible holes in the basement walls and pipe-fitted long-wear rubber tubes. The first series of tests required a network of delicate ducts. I am the vena cava and the aorta, Eddie paraphrased. (laughs) Whatever goes for me must return to me. You be the engineers. Figure out the best way to nourish all outlying areas. By nourish, Schmull pointed out, he really meant suffocate. On the 29th of July, they were ready. At 8.13 a.m., the first small-scale, small-area test took place. At 8.12 a.m., just before the moment of poof, another footnote, the moment of poof, an urban boyhood by Schmuel Klein, Mitzvah Press. All the business of the cellars was being transacted. Garbage transferred from small cans into large ones. Early, wide-awake grandmas, rocky with insomnia, dumped wash into the big tubs. Boys in swimming trunks rolled baby carriages out into the cool morning. A coal truck arrived, shifted back up across the sidewalk, stopped, shoved its black ramp into one sooty cellar window, and commenced to roar. Mr. Clock's radio was loud as he worked, rolling the cans, hoisting them with Carl's help up the wooden cellar steps, arguing with the coalman about the right-of-way, he listened to the news. He wanted to know if the sun would roll out, flashy as ever, if there was a chance for rain, as his brother grew tomatoes in Jersey. At 8.13 a.m., the alarm clock in the laboratory gave the ringing word. Eddie touched a button in the substructure of an ordinary glass coffee pot from whose spout two tubes proceeded into the wall. A soft hiss followed. The coffee pot steamed and clouded and cleared. Forty seconds later, Mr. Klopp howled, Jesus, who farted? Although the smell was not quite like that at all. Eddie, the concocter, knew. It was at least meant to be greener, skunkier, closer to the deterrence built into animals and flowers, but stronger. He was informed immediately of a certain success by the bellows of the coal delivery men, the high cries of the old ladies. Satisfied, Eddie touched another button, this at the base of Mrs. Spitz's reconstructed vacuum cleaner. The reverse process used no more than two minutes. The glass clouded, the spout was stoppered, the genie returned. Eddie knew it would take the boys a little longer to get free of their observation posts and the people who were observing them. During that speck of time, his heart sank, as hearts may do, after a great act of love. He suffered a migraine from exceeding desolation. When Carl brought excited news, he listened sadly for what is life, he thought. "'God great!' cried Carl. "'History-making! Crazy! Eddie! Eddie! A mystery! No one knows! How? What? Where?' Yet, Eddie said, you better quiet down, Carl. But listen, Eddie, nobody can figure it out, said Carl. How long did it last? It ended before that fat, dope Gordinsky got out of our toilet. She was hollering and pulling up her bloomers and pulling down her dress. I watched from the door. It laid me sideways. She's not even supposed to use that toilet. It's ours. (laughs) Yeah, said Eddie. Wait a minute, wait a minute, listen. My father kept saying, Jesus, dear, did I forget to open an exhaust someplace? Jesus, dear, what did I do? Did I wreck up the flues? Tell me, tell me, give me a hint. Your father's a very nice old guy, Eddie said coldly. Oh, I know that, said Carl. Wonderful head, said Arnold, who had just entered. Look at my father, Eddie said, taking the dim and agitated view. Look at him. He sits in that store, he doesn't shave, maybe twice a week. Sometimes he doesn't move an hour or two. His nose drips, so the bird knows he's living. That lousy son of a bitch used to be a whole expert on world history. He supports a stinking zoo and that filthy monkey that can't even piss straight. Bitterness for his cramped style and secondhand pants took his breath away. So he laughed and let them have the facts. You, You know, my old man was so hard up just before he got married... And he got such terrific respect for women. He respects women, let me tell you. that you know what he did? He snuck into the Bronx Zoo, and he rammed it up a chimpanzee there. You're surprised, aren't you? Listen to me. They shipped that baby away to France. If my father would have owned up, we'd have been rich. Makes me sort of think about it. He'd have been the greatest buggerer in recorded history. He'd be wanted in pigsties and stud farms. They'd telegraph him a note from her coots, to get in on those crazy cross-pollination experiments, what he could do to winter wheat—that cocksucker tells everyone he went over to Paris to see if his cousins were alive. He went over to get my big brother Itzik to bring him home to aggravate my mother and me. Ah," said Carl. "So that's it," said Shmuel, a late reporter playing alongside Eddie. "That's how you got so smart—constant competition with an oddball sibling." <laughs> Aha. Please, said Arnold, his sketch pad wobbly on his knees. Please, Eddie, raise your arms like that again, like you just did when you were mad. It gives me an idea. Jerks, said Eddie, and spat on the spotless laboratory floor. A bunch of jerks. Still in all, the 19th century idea that progress is imminent is absolutely correct. For his sadness dwindled, and early August was a time of hard work and glorious conviviality. The mystery of the powerful non-toxic gas from an unknowable source remained. The boys kept their secret. Outsiders wondered. They knew. They swilled coke like a regiment which has captured all the enemy pinball machines without registering a single tilt. Saturday nights at the lab were happy, ringing with 45 RPM surrounded by wonderful women. All kinds of whistling adventures were recorded by Schmolle. He had it all written down, how one night Mr. Klopp wandered in looking for fuses and found Arnold doing life sketches of Rita Niskoff. She held a retort over one breast in order to make technical complications for Arnold, who was ambitious. Keep it up, keep it up, son, mumbled Klopp, to whom it was all a misunderstanding. And another night, Blanche Spitz took off everything but her drawers and her brassiere because of a teaspoon of rum and a quart and a half of coke decided to do setting-up exercises to the tune of the Nutcracker Suite. Ah, Blanche, said Carl, nearly nauseous with love. Do me a belly dance, baby. I don't know what a belly dance is, Carl, she said, and to the count of eight went into a deep knee bend. Arnold lassoed her with Rita's skirt, which he happened to have in his hand. He dragged Blanche off to a corner where he slapped her, dressed her, asked her what her fee was, and did it include relatives. And Before she could answer, he slapped her again, then took her home. Rita's skirt flung over one shoulder. This kind of event will turn an entire neighborhood against the most intense chronology of good works. Rita's skirt, hung by a buttonhole, fluttered for two days from the iron cellar railing and was unclaimed. Girls schmooled editorialized in his little book, Live a Stone Age Life in a Blown Glass Cave. Eddie had to receive most of this chattery matter from Shmuel. The truth is that Eddie did not take frequent part in the festivities, as Saturday was his father's movie night. Mr. Teitelbaum would have closed the shop, but the manager of the Lowe's refused to sell a ticket. Show me, said Mr. Teitelbaum, where it says no monkeys. Please, said the manager, this is my busy night. Itzik had never been alone, for although he was a brilliant monkey, in the world of men, he is dumb. Ox, said Mr. Tigelbaum, you know what it's like to have a monkey for a pet? It's like raising up a moron. You get very attached, no matter what, and very tied down. Still in all, things are picking up around here, said Carl. About a week after the unpleasant incident with the girls, which eventually drove the entire Niskoff family about six blocks uptown, where they were unknown, Eddie asked for an off-schedule meeting. School was due to begin in three weeks, and he was determined to complete the series which would prove his war attenuator marketable among the nations. Don't exaggerate, said Schmuel. What we have here is a big smell. (laughs) Non-toxic, Eddie pointed out, no matter how concentrated, non-toxic. Don't forget that, Klein, because that's the beauty of it. An instrument of war that will not kill. Imagine that. Okay, he said, I can see. So? Shmuel, you got an eye. What did the people do during the last test? Did they choke? Did their eyes run? What happened? I already told you, Eddie, nothing happened. They only ran. They ran like hell. They held their noses and they tore out the door and a couple of kids crawled up the coal ramp. Everybody gave a yelp and then ran. What about your father, Carl? Oh, for Christ's sake, if I told you once, I told you 20 times. He got out fast. Then he stood on the steps holding his nose and figuring who to pass the buck to. Well, that's what I mean, boys. It's the lesson of the cockroach segregator. The peaceful guy who listens to the warning of his senses will survive generations of defeat. Who needs the inheritance of the louse with all that miserable virulence in his nucleic acid? Who? I haven't worked out the political strategy altogether, but our job here anyway is just to figure out the technology. Okay, now the rubber tubes have to be extended up to the first and second floor of 1432, 1434, 1436, the three attached buildings. Do not drill into Mikhelevich on the corner, as this could seep into the ice cream containers and fudge and stuff. And I haven't tested out all the comestibles. If you work today and tomorrow, we should be done by Thursday. On Friday, the test goes forward. By noon, we ought to have all reports and know what we have. Any questions? Carl, get the tools. You're in charge. I have to fix this goddamn percolator and see what the motor's like. We'll meet on Friday morning, same time, 7.30 a.m. Then Eddie hurried back to the shop to clean the bird cages, which he had forgotten about for days because of the excitement in his mind. Itzik offered him a banana. He accepted. Itzik peeled for him, then got a banana for himself. He threw the peels into the trash can, for which Eddie kissed him on his foolish face. He jumped to Eddie's shoulder to tease the birds. Eddie did not like him to do this, for those birds will give you psittacosis, said Eddie, if you aggravate them too much. (laughs) This is an untested hypothesis, but it makes sense. As you know, people who loathe you will sneeze in your face when their mucous membranes are most swollen or when their throat is host to all kinds of cocci. Don't, Itzikul, he said gently and put the monkey down. Then Itzik hung from Eddie's shoulder by one long arm, eating the banana behind his back. That's how I like to see you, said Mr. Teitelbaum when he looked into the shop. Once in a while, anyway. Eddie was near the end of a long summer's labor. He could bear being peaceful and happy. On Friday morning, Carl, Arnold, and Schmuel waited outside. They had plenty of bubblegum and lollipops in which Eddie had personally invested. They were responsible for maintaining equilibrium among the little children who might panic. They also had notebooks, and in these reports, each boy was expected to cover only one building. Inside, Eddie played a staccato note on the button under the percolator. After that, it was very simple. People poured from the three buildings. Tenants on the upper floors, which were not involved, poked their heads out the windows because of the commotion. The controls were so fine that they had gotten only the barest whiff and had assumed it to be the normal smell of morning rising from the cracked back of the fish market three blocks east. Eddie had agreed not to leave the laboratory until reports came in from the other boys. He was perplexed when half an hour had passed and they did not appear. There wasn't even a book to read, so he busied himself disconnecting his home-constructed appliances, funneling the residue powder into a paper envelope, which he kept in his back pocket. Suddenly, he worried about everyone. What could happen to Itsy Bitsy Mikhailovich, who sat outside his father's door spinning a yo-yo and singing a no-song to himself all day? He was, in fact, a goddamn helpless idiot. What about Mrs. Spitz, who would surely stop to put her corset on and would faint away and maybe crack her skull on a piece of rococo mahogany? What about heart failure in people over 40? What about the little Suskind kids? They were so wild, so baffled out of sense, they might jump into the dumbwaiter shaft. He was scrubbing the sink, trying to uproot his miserable notions when the door opened. Two policemen came in and put their hands on him. Eddie looked up and saw his father. Their eyes met, and because of irrevocable pain, held. That was the moment, said Schmull later on after that and other facts, that Eddie fell headfirst into the black heart of a deep depression. This despair required all his personal attention for years. No one could make proper contact with him again to tell him the news. Did he know that he had caused the death of all his father's stock? Even the three turtles, damn it, every last minnow, mm. even the worms that were the fish's Sunday dinner had wriggled their last. The, dir- the birds were dead at the bottom of their clean cages. Itzik Halfont lay in a coma from which he would never recover. He lay in Eddie's bed on Eddie's new mattress between Eddie's sheet. Let him die at home, said Mr. Teitelbaum, not with a bunch of poodles at spires. He caressed his scrawny shoulder that was itchy, and furry, and cried, Halfont, Halfont, you are my little friend. No matter how lovingly a person or a doctor rapped at the door to Eddie's mind, Eddie refused to say, come in. Karl Klopp called loudly, taking a long distance, local stop, suburban train several times, to tell Eddie that it was really he who had thought it would be wonderful to see old Teitelbaum run screaming with hysterical itzik. For this pleasure, this sight would give, Carl had connected the rubber tubes to a small vent between the basement of 1436 and the rear of the pet shop. Mm. He had waited at the corner, and sure enough, they had come at last Mr. Teitelbaum running, and Itzik gasping for breath. Klopp's bad luck, said Klopp, to have a son who wasn't serious. Eddie was remanded to the custody of Dr. Scott Tully, director of a home for boys, in something less than three weeks. The police impounded Schmuel's notebooks, but learned only literary things about faces and the sex habits of adolescent boys. Also found was an outline of a paper Eddie had planned for the anti-vivisectionist press, describing his adventures as a self-prepared subject for the gas tolerance experiments. It was entitled, No Guinea Pig Fronts for Me. As any outsider can judge, this is an insane idea. Eddie was cared for at a home for boys by a white-frocked attendant, cross-eyed and muscle-bound, with strong canines oppressing his lower lip, a nose neatly broken and sloppily joined. This was Jim's son, and he was kind to Eddie. Because he's no trouble to me, Mr. Teitelbaum, he's a good boy. If he opens his eyes wide, I know he wants to go to the bathroom. He ain't crazy. He ain't crazy, Mr. Teitelbaum. He just got nothing to say right now is all. I've seen a lot of cases, don't you worry. Mr. Teitelbaum didn't have too much to say himself. This made him feel united with Eddie. He came every Sunday and sat with him in silence on a bench in the garden behind a home. In bad weather, they met in the parlor, a jolly rectangle scattered with small, hooked rugs. They sat for one hour opposite one another in comfortable chairs, peaceful people. Then Eddie opened his eyes wide and Jim's son said, Okay, let's go, buddy. Shut eye don't hurt the kings of the jungles. Bears hibernate. Mr. Teitelbaum stood on his tiptoes and folded Eddie in his arms. Sonny, don't worry so much, he said, then went home. This situation prevailed for two years. One cold winter day, Mr. Teitelbaum had the flu and couldn't visit. Where the hell's my father, Eddie growled. That was the opener. After that, Eddie said other things. Before the week had ended, Eddie said, I'm sick of peppers, Jim. They give me gas. A week later, he said, What's the news, Long Island Sink yet? Dr. Tully had never anticipated Eddie's return. Once they go up the road, they're gone, he had confided to the newspaper men. He invited a consultant from a competing but friendly establishment. He was at last able to give Eddie a Rorschach, which restored his confidence in his original pessimism. Let him have more responsibility, the consultant suggested, which they did at once, allowing him, because of his background, to visit the A Home for Boys Zoo. He was permitted to fondle a rabbit and tease two box turtles. There was a fawn, caged and sick, also a swinging monkey, but Eddie didn't bat an eyelash. That night, he vomited. What's with the peppers, Jimmy? Can't that dope cook only with peppers? Dr. Tully explained that Eddie was now a helper. As soon as there was a vacancy, he would be given sole responsibility for one animal. Thank God, Mr. Teitelbaum said, a dumb animal is a good friend. At last a boy was cured, sent home to his mother, a vacancy existed. Dr. Tully considered this a fortunate vacancy, for the cured boy had been in charge of the most popular snake in the zoo. The popularity of the snake had made the boy very popular. The popularity of the boy had increased his self-confidence. He had become vice president of the boy's assembly. He had acquired friends and psychophants. He had become happy, cured, and had been returned to society. On the very first day, he proved his mettle. He cleaned the cage with his right hand, holding the snake way out with his left. He had many admirers immediately. When you go home, can I have the job, asked a very pleasant small boy, who was only mildly retarded, but some father was willing to lay out a fortune because he was ashamed. I'm not going anywhere, Sonny, said Eddie. I like it here. On certain afternoons, shortly after milk and cookies, Eddie had to bring a little white mouse to his snake. He slipped the mouse into the cage, and that is why this snake was so popular. The snake did not eat the mouse immediately. At four o'clock, the boys began to gather. They watched the mouse cowering in the corner. They watched the lazy snake wait for his hungry feelings to tickle him all along his curly interior. Every now and then, he hiked his spine and raised his head, and the boys breathed hard. Sometime between 4.30 and 6 o'clock, he would begin to slither aimlessly around the cage. The boys laid small bets on the time, winning and losing chunks of chocolate cake or a handful of raisins. Suddenly, but without fuss, and one had to be really watching, the snake stretched his long body, opened his big mouth, and gulped the little live mouse, who always went down squeaking. Eddie could not disapprove because this was truly the nature of the snake but he pulled his cap down over his eyes and turned away. Jimmy's son told him at supper one night, "'Guess what I heard. "'I heard you're acquiring your back your identity. "'Not bad.' "'My identity?' asked Eddie. "'A week later, Eddie handed in a letter of resignation. "'He sent a copy to his father. "'The letter said, "'Thank you, Dr. Tully. "'I know who I am. "'I am no mouse killer. "'I am Eddie Teitelbaum, "'the father of the stink bomb.' and I am known for my dedication to cause and my fearlessness in the face of effect. Do not bother me anymore. I have nothing to say sincerely. Dr. Tully wrote a report in which he pointed with pride to his consistent pessimism in the case of Eddie Teitelbaum. This was considered remarkable in the face of so much hope, and it was remembered by his peers. While Eddie was making the decision to go out of his mind as soon as possible, other decisions were being made elsewhere. Mr. Teitelbaum, for his instance, decided to die of grief and old age, which frequently overlap, and that was the final decision for all Teitelbaums. Schmuel sat down to think and was disowned by his father. Arnold ran away to East 29th Street, where he built up a lovely bordello of naked oils at considerable effort and expense. But Carl, the son of Klopp, had tasted with Eddie's tongue. He went to school and stayed for years in order to become an atomic physicist for the Navy. Nowadays, on the 807, Carl sails out into the hophead currents of our time, fights the undertow with little beep beep singles. He has retained his cheerful disposition, and for this service to the world, has just received a wife who was washed out of the rockets for being too beautiful. The war attenuator has been bottled weak under pressure. It is sometimes called Teitelbaum's Mixture, and its ingredients have been translated into Spanish on the label. It is one of the greatest bug killers of all time. Unfortunately, it is sometimes hard on philodendrons and old family rubber plants. Mrs. Gordinsky still prefers to have her kitchen protected by the segregator. An old fashioned lady, she drops in bulk to her knees to scrub the floor. She cannot help seeing the cockroach caught and broiled in his own juice by the busy A.C. She flicks the cockroach off the wall. She smiles and praises Eddie.
0: (laughs) Extraordinary. A lot of people who know a lot about Grace don't know that story. You know what I mean? Because it's so unusual, and and it's a long one. Anyway, thank you so much for choosing to read that story. Oh, thanks for letting me read it. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Unfortunately, we have no more time now Ah! because we listened (laughs) to that wonderful story. But that's okay. That's okay. We're going to be on the radio again, folks. The two of us. We're on this radio. So, thank you for listening. And remember, support your local independent bookstores your independent reading series, and your independent radio. This is Goodnight from Ken Jones and Judith Arcana celebrating Grace Paley on Poetry and Everything.